This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the podcast, Madame Gandhi will talk about how she's being the change she wants to see in the world through her music. We tolerate much of the misogyny in music today because the music is so good. What if we use a similar strategy where we make excellent music but then say something positive with that music? A Bloomberg reporter will talk about his investigation into the dark side of K-pop. It's an industry that tries to control its stars to fit into a formula. But its stars have been tied up with issues around assault, prostitution, suicide, and more. Yet K-pop is still thriving. There's a lot of money at stake here. And to the extent that the formula still works, I think it will be very hard to see there being a great deal of reform. We'll hear why Vashon Island near Seattle is home to so many musicians and creatives. When we were looking for a place to buy a house, the idea was, well, let's buy a house in the kind of place where you would want to go decompress after a tour. And that's really what we found here. But first, we're going to hear how a suburban dad became an indie pop star overnight. Brian Fennell makes music in his home studio in Snohomish, Washington. But he has a massive online following under the name Simmel. Sound and Vision correspondent Jonathan Zwickle has a story of his rise to success. It took Brian Fennell a lifetime to achieve overnight success. His transition from home studio hermit to international tours and millions of monthly Spotify listeners seems like a familiar story. He's the artist who quietly honed his craft only to be swept up in a wave of fame. But the details are excruciatingly improbable. They're also the perfect representation of the unconventional ways music is made, distributed, and discovered in the streaming era. Anywhere I go, pretty much around the world, there's going to be like a small handful of people that are like, I know that song. Or that song spoke to me or whatever. And, and just for that to even exist is, is a, some element of like virality. That's Fennel. He's a 37-year-old Seattle native and veteran recording artist who first gained attention in the late aughts as lead singer, songwriter, and keyboardist for the indie pop band Barcelona. After being discovered on MySpace, yeah, you heard that right. The quartet signed to Universal Motown and released a couple low-key hits before going on hiatus a few years ago. His latest endeavor is the down-tempo solo project he calls Simmel. And the best place to drop into his journey is where it intersects with Teen Wolf. No, not the 1985 comedy starring Michael J. Fox, but the Twilight-inspired werewolf soap opera that aired on MTV between 2011 and 2017. Back in 2016... Fennell had never seen Teen Wolf, didn't even know it existed. But his publisher in Los Angeles had sent a digital version of his song, Where's My Love, to Teen Wolf's music supervisor, who dropped it into a 30-second promo for the show. Where's My Love was such a perfect fit for Teen Wolf that it ended up in a bunch of scenes over the course of the last few seasons and basically became the show's de facto theme song. Fans were swept up in the beautiful sound of doomed werewolf romance. Come on, lady. You have to come back to us. There's no way we're getting through this without you. Fans shazammed the song to discover its provenance, posted about it on Reddit and YouTube. They found Fennel's online information and began emailing him impassioned messages about Where's My Love and how it was made for Teen Wolf's star-crossed lead characters. Fennel, of course, had no idea about the show, much less the characters. Before he realized what was happening, Where's My Love was an internet phenomenon. 
from that moment till probably six months later, it was like Teen Wolf changed everything. The sudden flurry of activity around his music meant Fennell needed to make his burgeoning solo project official. He had to choose a name. He went with a suggestion made by his wife. Long story short, Simmel is Welsh, the Welsh word for simple. The name is a reminder to himself as an artist to always pare away the excess and keep only the essential stuff. Simple, he says, is always better. And Welsh? Because my heritage is Welsh, and I only learned that uh, when I was 18 because I was adopted and had a closed adoption, and that was like the the one piece of paper I got when I was 18, sort of sharing some of that health history and and, uh, heritage history. Growing up not knowing his birth parents, not knowing his background, Fennell says that his creative process has mostly been about looking back at his life, recognizing those voids, and filling them with music because I know that it is like an important part of why I create. With Simmel as his new name and new mantra, Fennel started releasing more songs online. And those songs started taking off. Spotify added his heartrending Girl Acoustic to a popular proprietary playlist called The Most Beautiful Songs in the World. With Girl Acoustic, plus Where's My Love, Simmel's play count skyrocketed. That's got to be one of the coolest parts of Spotify is the discovery factor. And, and I keep a playlist now on Spotify that I get fed artists that I never would have stumbled on otherwise. The Teen Wolf connection drives home an important aspect of Fennel's music. This stuff is inherently cinematic. There is, at this point in my musical life, uh, a consistent theme of very visual sounding music. His compositions escalate slowly and build dramatic tension that pairs perfectly to visual storytelling. So no surprise his music videos have taken off on YouTube. Since it was released in early 2017, his video for Where's My Love has been viewed more than 48 million times. If she ran away, if she ran away, come back home. When Fennel finally released Simmel's self-titled debut album in May of this year, it landed on number five on the Billboard Heatseekers chart. It contains his previous hits, plus a dozen more songs in a similarly yearning, ethereal mode, like the song Wildfire. He self-recorded and produced the album at his home in the Seattle suburb of Snohomish. He published it by sharing tracks online with a handful of close collaborators in L.A. This is a bit 21st century music creation, but I have my little hermit studio, they have theirs, and we can just send files. Even as his process of recording, brand building, and fan gathering is rooted online, Fennel spent most of the last year traversing the real world, playing dozens of dates across the U.S. and Europe. Performing live, his stage setup varies, Sometimes he plays with a backing band of drums and keys. Sometimes he's accompanied by a three-piece string section. At a show at the Crocodile in Seattle earlier this year, Fennel stood alone on stage with an acoustic guitar and balanced his brooding music with sincere personal asides between songs. The young, mostly female audience was rapt. This is a song I wrote for my daughter. She had to go through a very intense surgery, and it was uh, a crazy time for me and my family, but this is a song called Girl. Those same fans might be equally into Jen Champion's most recent record, Single Rider, especially if they knew that Fennel produced it. 
Champion is a longtime Seattle singer-songwriter with a history of writing sad, solo acoustic folk. But she told her record label that she wanted to branch out and make pop music. And then we tried to basically write like this, I wouldn't say a pop hit, but a very like accessible song. Fennel helped her make that switch. You can hear it clearly in the song OMG. heard Champion's new album, and you really should because it was one of the best albums of 2018, you know that it's not seriously sad. It's actually an upbeat album, full of low-key bangers and electro-pop anthems of personal empowerment. It acknowledges life's problems and then sweats them out on the dance floor. I've learned that a ton through Simmel, is that wherever I go, there is a room full of people that love to feel that, that same feeling. And I don't think it's a crazy jump to dress it up in a different way that might end on the dance floor or cause you to move. As a band leader, Fennel craves direct audience engagement. As a recording artist, he appreciates the instant unfettered access that technology provides. And as a producer, he bridges emotions and musical styles. And all of it, from the moment of creativity to the moment of discovery, is governed by forces he can't quite grasp. Mystery. And he's fine with that. That moment when, out in spite of yourself, there's like a chain of events that happen and people to, that discover the music from so many different areas of the internet or radio or film and TV, um, all convening because of this one three and a half minute song is more powerful. I mean, it's supernatural. It's crazy. For Sound and Vision, I'm Jonathan Zwickle. This is Sound and Vision. Madame Gandhi is an activist, a drummer who's collaborated with MIA, Lizzo, and Thievery Corporation. She triple majored at Georgetown University, got her MBA at Harvard, made it on Forbes' 30 under 30 list, and so much more. KEXP's Dusty Henry caught up with her during KEXP's live broadcast at Iceland Airwaves last month. He talked with her about how she uses music as a vehicle for change. Patriarchy kept stopping me, so I drew a map. Ways to navigate the boys club, the bros and the frats. Ways to ease my mind, so I stay fine, because I can deal with that. And if this degrees in misogyny, well, you can have it back. Feminism is strong at the center of, of uh, your work. When did you first feel like you became aware of the need to challenge like patriarchal norms and, and see a need for change? I think it was growing up watching pop culture, which is why I choose to use music um, as my message. I noticed, you know, I'd be watching Aladdin, which was one of my favorite movies, and Aladdin is the one who's grown up in poverty, and yet he's the one riding all over the magic carpet, living his best life. And Jasmine is the princess, and yet she's not uh, living to the fullest of her potential, if you ask me. And as a kid, I think I picked up on uh, these discrepancies, which just didn't make sense. You know, why do the boys always get to have the really interesting storylines, and the girls uh, get reduced to either being the princess or sort of the, the love object of the main character. So things like that really stuck with me, and I felt critical of them. And then I think other things, too, would be growing up in New York City, I had this uh, bus driver, Harrison. We were, like, being kindergarten, 
And as we'd pick up all the kids in front of the parents, he would play the classical music station. But as soon as we would drive away, he would turn it back to the hip hop station. And so I was growing up to Nas and to all these incredible artists. But then when I would watch the music videos, I would be like, oh, this is so upsetting. You know, you're reducing the women simply to their sex and sexuality. And so I think that was another way that I really grew up being like, wow, I want to make music or at least I want to be drumming for artists who don't contribute necessarily to the object objectification of women and who are doing something a little bit more nuanced with their music. Yeah, and I think you kind of mentioned that on the song uh, Waiting For Me. Um, that song starts with the clip of you talking about not wanting to turn up to the sound of your own oppression. I'm not every day trying to turn up to the sound of my own oppression. You feel me? Do you want to speak some more about that? Definitely. I think every time that I go you know, to work out or to a different club or whatever it is or listen to the new music that's coming out, I love the beats, I love the production, and I usually love the flow and, and I, the artist, but then the lyrics have so much misogyny embedded into the song that I'm like, I don't want to have to turn up to the sound of my own oppression. It's not fair. Um, and like I said earlier on the stage today, I'm not trying to tell other people how to make their music, but I am here to provide and design the alternative. And so that's why I wanted to start off not only that song, but the entire record I just put out, Visions, with that sentiment. And you know, from from music, you uh, you moved into activism and pers uh, pursued a lot of uh, education. You studied poli sci, women's studies, and mathematics at Georgetown. You got your MBA from Harvard. How has your education informed your art? I think my education has allowed me to actually thrive and succeed as an artist because I feel like I am driving my own ship. Many times, some of the most talented artists have been vulnerable to the claws of the industry. If you don't know something, if there's an information asymmetry whereby one party, the business party, knows more than the other party, the artist, that allows for exploitation. And so going to get my MBA, studying mathematics, studying the music industry, working in the music industry, taught me a lot of tools that I didn't know that I would end up using to the extent that I do. And I love being able to wake up every day and be like, wow, am I working on music today? Am I producing? Am I scoring for somebody else? Am I writing lyrics? Or am I managing the project? Am I thinking about the horizons? Am I thinking about the next goals? Am I calling up my friends at Spotify and asking them to play the music? You know, meeting friends at KEXP and saying, hey, if there's a song you connect with, will you play it so that we spread this good message? So I think uh, educating yourself with as much tool, as many tools as you can is vital if you want to be an indie artist these days. And activism and music overlap clearly in, in your music. Um, what do you think music can do as a vehicle for change that other mediums can't? Music caters to the emotions. Music opens you up and makes you feel something so that when someone talks to you, you're moved far more than you would be if you were listening to some sort of political speech or something that has a financial engine behind it. Um, I think that in the same way, we tolerate much of the misogyny in music today because the music is so good what if we use a similar strategy where we make excellent music but then say something positive with that music so that's what I'm trying to do yeah I love that and that comes so clearly through your music 
I read a quote where you talked about wanting to see a world where we value femininity as much as we value masculinity. Um, where do you think that change starts and how are you pushing this forward with your music? I think it's really about us as femmes, as folks with feminine energy, regardless of your gender identity, to step into the power of that. I think for so long, feminisms of the past have validated and reaffirmed masculine styles of leadership as a way to advance yourself. For example, telling folks, you know, if you want to be a CEO, you have to be more aggressive and you have to wear a suit and you have to look the part. But if we're aspiring to masculinity, we will always lose as folks who are more in our femme because we're trying to be something that we're not. So what if instead we said, let folks who are authentically in their masculine lead from that, but let folks who are authentically in their femme lead from something completely different. And for me, it's about valuing emotional intelligence, you know, over brute force aggression. Like we have number 45 in the White House, just like tweeting and being, you know, aggressive at every opportunity he gets being collaborative instead of competitive all oh, you know we're gonna kill it slay it there's only number one you know i've never operated that way anytime something good has happened in my life it's not because i beat out a bunch of people it's because they helped me out you know so i think for me my feminism is really about reaffirming femininity and positioning what women and femmes bring to the table as something that is aspirational you just released your second EP, um, Visions. Um, coming off of Voices, what were you hoping to convey with this, with this record and uh, what conversations are you looking to expand upon? I'm so happy you asked me this question. Um, Visions is really about looking inward in order to imagine a brighter future outward. For me, it's about wanting to be the change you wish to see in the world. And every song addresses that theme on a different level. So the first song, Waiting For Me, is on a very global, macro level. Um, how do we make sure we're using sustainable practices in our own backyard? How do we make sure that we're not contributing to the mass consumerism of the world and filling, you know, landfills and things like that? In our minds with drugs and liquor Knowing that we'll die off quicker All our people getting sicker Can't afford organic stickers the second song, Top Not Turn Up, is about putting your hair up in a bun and getting work done. How do we stay focused and inward uh, in terms of our own personal missions. This is a song about getting the work done. Hair up in a bun, that's the most fun. Hearing myself think when I go for a run. Or maybe I'm practicing the drums. Or maybe I'm writing in the sun. The takeaway point is I'm talking to no one. Protecting my vibes that are wholesome. Trying my best to solve actual problems. You have See Me Through, which is about envisioning the relationship you wish to have for your own life. Finding healthy love, regardless of your own gender identity and whom you're attracted to. And then uh, the fourth song, Young Indian, is very much a personal anthem about criticizes education, um, but also by being self-aware and still very reflective. How do I be my best self in this system? Went to school to see what they are really teaching kids. Seems like making money is the only thing there is. Not to say that being in class is not a privilege, but I would rather take that knowledge and be changing things. And then the final song on the album, the grand finale, is Bad Habits. Like, all my bad habits have got to go. I've got to be the, the best version of myself if I intend to make any kind of social impact. I've been so pressed that I don't even know what's bothering me. All my bad habits have got to, got to go entirely. It's my year to be free from what's bothering me. It's this society that's killing me. 
this is the identity of visions. In your live performances, we see firsthand the different hats you wear. You're literally doing it all yourself. Um, uh, what do you want to convey from your live performances and what type of environment are you trying to create? I think when I perform alone, I think what translates is the ownership of the project. I think it allows my audience to really connect and say, wow, this is someone who is putting their all in every detail. Whether I'm drumming, I'm expressing myself. The clothing that I'm wearing is my own clothing line. My own nerdy dance moves are my own nerdy dance moves. You know, there's no other dancers doing like high res choreo. So I like that version of the project because it's very raw and pure and it's challenging. So then people will respect you for that. But I also really enjoy the more recent iteration of my project where I've been able to perform with a full live band of queer and femme identifying folks and musicians. And at my album release party, I had nine musicians in a circle around me playing the, the records entirely live with no backing tracks, no DJ. And that was super, super empowering because it's embodying that very collaborative spirit that I'm trying to see in the world. So those are my two sort of variations of the show and both achieve different things. That was Madame Gandhi speaking with KEXP's Dusty Henry. The Dark Side of K-Pop. Assault, Prostitution, Suicide, and Spy Cams. That's the title of a recent article in Bloomberg, co-authored by my next guest, Matthew Campbell. He joins us from Singapore to talk about how the K-pop industry works and how it's been tied up in so many scandals in recent months. Hi, Matthew. Hi there. So before we dig into the big controversies surrounding K-pop right now, I want to get a better understanding of how it functions. Can you first talk about how K-pop stars have to go through years of training to start, you know, to eat before they even become a K-pop star and what that training entails? Well, Emily, K-pop is a, a pretty unique industry in terms of how it functions. Uh, it, it owes something to the old studio system in Hollywood or, or to the factory in Motown. Uh, basically, the idea is that you have these uh, organizations called management companies, which are kind of record labels, tour promoters, talent agencies, all in one. And their uh, principal function is to find what they call trainees who are apprentices, uh, generally unpaid, or they might be paid a small stipend. They're, they start very young, sometimes 10 or 11 years old, and they train just incredibly hard uh, through their whole adolescence, singing, dancing, uh, foreign languages, how to behave in public, how to be a celebrity. And then uh, once they hit 18, 19, uh, the best of these trainees are assembled into groups, and the groups uh, make a debut, and if all goes well, uh, you have then uh, produced some new K-pop stars. But of course, it's a, it's a pretty narrow funnel. So a lot more trainees start that process than finish it. And once these K-pop performers get out in front of the public, if they make it, you know, you know, through this rigorous training process and they decide, OK, these this these K-pop you know, performers can become stars. Once they're in front of the public, kind of the label controls their personal lives in a way we don't necessarily see in the U.S. You write in this article in Bloomberg that labels discourage dating and that, quote, the ideal idol has a moral record as unblemished as their poor. So why is it important in Korea's music industry for a 
K-pop star to have such a clean personal life that they can't even date, for example? Well, the simple answer is that it's bad for business uh, for stars to get into trouble. There has been a, a very rational calculation made on the part of these management companies that if a star gets into trouble with drugs, with a bad relationship or, or anything that could affect their public perception, that this is something they would rather avoid. And this goes back to the fact that these stars are all, all of them, employees. Uh, Justin Bieber is an independent contractor. Miley Cyrus, uh, the same. They have agents. They have managers. They have record labels. Whereas in K-pop, everybody has a boss. They all work for these management companies. And the, the companies believe that keeping their stars out of trouble is just good for business. It is also important to note that uh, Korea, certainly, as well as Japan, and to a certain extent, China, uh, are in some respects uh, conservative societies. And uh, stars who get into serious trouble, uh, whether it's with the law or with drugs, uh, could have their reputations really suffer as a result. Well, speaking of scandals, it seems like, you know, despite labels' persistence to try to keep these clean records for their K-pop stars, there have been a lot of scandals, especially this past year. Um, there were issues surrounding the Seoul nightclub called Burning Sun. So it was partly owned by a K-pop star who goes by the name Soon Ri. Burning Sun is now closed, but it was tied up in allegations of sex trafficking, date rape, spy camera recordings, and bribery. Can you fill us in with the details on what was happening at Burning Sun and what K-pop Soon Ri got involved with? So Burning Sun uh, was, as you say, it's now closed, a nightclub in uh, Gangnam, which is the uh, rather fancy Beverly Hills-ish part of Seoul, uh, made famous by, by that song Gangnam Style, which was K-pop's first real crossover hit. Gangnam Style. And what happened at Burning Sun was there were a series of revelations that came out at the beginning of this year that essentially claimed that there had been widespread uh, sexual assault, uh, drug use, beatings of patrons, and just all kinds of, of pretty gross behavior going on at Burning Sun, which was, of course, co-owned by this quite bankable star, Seungri. Uh, and this then spiraled into a series of other allegations. Uh, text messages were leaked. Uh, there were revelations that there may have been collusion uh, between uh, Burning Sun and the police in the Gangnam neighborhood to uh, hush up allegations, that sort of thing. And it just snowballed into this really broad scandal that actually led to uh, criminal charges against uh, several K-pop stars, uh, two of whom have uh, just been sentenced to prison, in fact. That's right. We saw news um, the, the Friday after Thanksgiving that two K-pop stars have been sentenced to prison for gang raping unconscious and drunk women. One of those stars was also found guilty of filming women against their will and sharing this sexually explicit material on an online group chat. And that case is tied to Burning Sun. But how is how are those two cases that came up in the news recently tied back to Burning Sun? The reason that these cases are being talked about in the context of Burning Sun is that the basis for these charges was principally text messages that were leaked as part of this really amazing series of revelations around Burning Sun, uh, all in February, March this year. 
and they appeared in the Korean press, and it was pretty rough stuff. Uh, there were accounts of what sounded like date rape, what sounded like really awful sexual assaults recounted in these text messages. In one case, uh, one of the participants responded to such an account with a, a sort of laughing emoji. So it was really horrific stuff. And uh, enough of it was legally actionable that there were charges against uh, these two individuals. And uh, Seung Ri as well uh, is maybe prosecuted on quite a few charges in a similar vein. So, I mean, this latest news of K-pop stars, you know, raping women and one of them sharing videos of sex partners online, um, you know, that we were just talking about that are now um, those two K-pop stars are now being charged. This seems to be a part of a larger problem of spy cams in Korea. Um, You write in your article uh, in Bloomberg that spy cams are routinely discovered in hotel rooms and public bathrooms. There was news in March that 1,600 hotel guests in South Korea had been filmed with spy cams and the footage was sold online. Why do you think spy cams are such an issue in Korea? Well, one of the reasons that these K-pop scandals have resonated so acutely in Korea is uh, this is a country that is really struggling with issues of gender equality. There is uh, an enormous gender pay gap, I believe, in fact, it's dead last uh, among the uh, the OECD countries in terms of uh, women's equality, in terms of earnings. There are very high levels of sexual assault. There are really pervasive reports of harassment uh, in the workplace. And then there is this peculiar phenomenon, uh, not unique to Korea, certainly, but but perhaps uniquely pervasive in Korea, of uh, spy cams. And these are little cameras discovered all over the place, all the time. Uh, bathrooms, hotel rooms, uh, gym changing rooms, uh, saunas, that sort of thing, that are uh, broadcasting or or certainly recording videos of women without their consent. And this is actually a big, big, big issue that is a major subject of public debate. And so to the extent that these K-pop allegations involved surreptitious recording uh, of women without their consent, there was a real resonance with this broader social issue. And and as I said, that is one of the reasons that, in addition to the fact that K-pop is a huge industry and very prominent in Korea and everyone knows who these people are, that is one of the reasons that uh, this scandal has become such a huge story in Korea. And then we've also seen lately, you know, speaking of gender issues, we've seen two female K-pop stars commit suicide in recent weeks. What has been contributing to the suicides? I mean, is I mean, we, we've seen word of cyberbullying. You know, there's also gender issues. What What have you read in terms of what is contributing to the recent suicides among female K-pop stars? Well, we should be careful to call them apparent suicides. I believe they haven't. Uh, there hasn't been a formal ruling on either of them yet, uh, though certainly they they do appear to have been suicides. These were two stars, uh, initially Suli, uh, most recently Gu Hara, uh, who were in, in various ways bullied online, who were under a great deal of pressure from the internet world over really their straying from the norms expected of them as K-pop stars, that they were uh, talking frankly about, for example, challenges with mental health. Uh, in the case of Suli, uh, that uh, she had expressed fairly open feminist ideas, which in Korea can be uh, somewhat controversial. So they had been targeted by really cyberbullying. There's no other word for it. 
Uh, and it does appear very sadly that in both cases, they, they decided to take their own lives as a result. And that this has just snowballed again into a broader debate about how the K-pop industry works and uh, whether the pressure is being put on these stars, which do go right back to this system of traineeship that we discussed at the beginning, uh, are excessive, are appropriate, are uh, in fact putting these performers into terrible personal situations that are hidden until they reach breaking point. And how has the K-pop industry itself reacted to these recent suicides? And, you know, there was also a suicide of a male K-pop star in 2017. How has the K-pop music industry responded to this? There has been some discussion of reform and, and some discussion of uh, cracking down on cyberbullying and, and urging fans to be more measured in their in their online commentaries, for example. But I think it really remains to be seen whether the industry durably changes. The, the thing about K-pop is it's incredibly successful. Uh, this is a remarkable export industry that, uh, you know, from a country that did not have a lot of cultural exports to sell around the world not so long ago, it really has exploded. I mean, it is the most popular music in Asia by a significant margin. Uh, it has led a, a broader wave of Korean culture, uh, particularly TV and film, that has really taken the rest of the region by storm. So there's a lot of money at stake here. And to the extent that the formula still works, uh, I think it will be very hard to see there being a great deal of reform, though, of course, uh, we could all be pleasantly surprised. But it doesn't look like like K-pop industry in general, despite all of these scandals, suicides, you know, sex scandals, you know, everything with, you know, the Burning Sun nightclub. I mean, K-pop, has it has it faced any financial struggles despite all these scandals recently? Uh, no, not yet, uh, though that, of course, could change uh, for the moment. Uh, everything in K-pop is up and to the right. Uh, the industry is booming. Uh, BTS, who are the biggest act by a mile uh, in K-pop are genuine global superstars. I believe they've topped the Billboard chart in the U.S. three times in 2019. So for now, the formula financially is working. Uh, and I don't think that until the formula stops working, we're going to see meaningful change. Uh, though, of course, there could be change as a result of, of these suicides. We'll just have to see. So, Michael Campbell, going back to the title of your article in Bloomberg, it's called The Dark Side of K-Pop, Assault, Prostitution, Suicide, and Spy Cams. Considering all of these issues at play, what do all these controversies say about the K-Pop industry itself? Well, I think, look, no music industry is free of scandal. That's that's for sure. And, and free of, of, in some cases, pretty awful behavior by stars. But I think there is a conversation that needs to be had about uh, whether the K-pop system is, first of all, training and, and instilling the right kind of values and the right kind of respect for others, particularly respect for women, that it needs to uh, in this trainee system. And I think another point, perhaps more pertinent to these apparent suicides, is whether the expectations layered onto these stars to really fit into a quite narrow mold, particularly for the female stars who are just subject to an incredibly strict set of behavioral and physical constraints, uh, whether these are really healthy restrictions for young people who need to express themselves, who need to be able to speak about how they're feeling. And I think there's a genuine question as to whether this 
created a bit of a, some monstrous side effects in, in this very otherwise very successful industry. I've been speaking with Matthew Campbell, senior reporter at Bloomberg. We've been talking about his recent article called The Dark Side of K-Pop, Assault, Prostitution, Suicide, and Spy Cams. Matthew, thanks so much for filling us in on all of this. Thank you. This is Sound and Vision. Let's travel back across the sea to an island off the coast of Seattle. It's Vashon Island. It's got an artistic hippie vibe, and it's home to a surprising number of creatives, including several big-name musicians. Sound and Vision sent Drew Pine, who actually began hosting his own radio show on the island's community FM station at the age of 11, to find out what it is about the island that attracts the creative type. Vashon Island sits in the middle of Puget Sound between Seattle and Tacoma. It's just a quick 15 to 20 minute ferry ride from either city. And although only around 11,000 people live on the island, its main town is flush with galleries, venues, restaurants that turn into venues, and there's even a $20 million center for the arts. This island attracts creatives. Some of its creative residents include Ian Moore, a guitarist and singer-songwriter who has a larger following in Texas than he does in the Seattle area. Musician Danny Newcomb lives on the island. There's also British-born audio engineer, producer, and musician Martin Fevier. Since moving here, he's worked with Mark Lanigan, Mudhoney, Damian Gerardo, Brandy Carlisle, and a bunch of others. And then there's Pete Droge. He's a nationally recognized singer-songwriter who was on a major label in the 90s, has opened for Tom Petty, and has had his songs featured in movies like Dumb and Dumber. Pete Droge, and I moved to Vashon Island on Halloween 1995. Droge and his wife Elaine Summers originally built their home studio as a space to record demos to aid in the songwriting process during Pete's time on a major label. However, the purpose began to shift as they started to settle into life on the island. Around 99, I started to get more serious about recording, and I was pivoting towards wanting to be able to make records here. Let me power up the studio, which is lots of... Lots of buttons to push. Droge started working with other recording artists in the mid-2000s out of his Puzzle Tree studio. His studio and Vashon Island became a retreat for his clients. It returned them to nature and a more relaxed way of life. We would have outside artists come out here, and that was a really um, kind of a magical time. Interestingly, most of the clients that we ended up working with were from other cities. So we had folks come from New York and L.A. and Chicago and Baltimore and Portland we had really cool deals going. You know, you could, like, you could rent a teepee at the, uh, at the youth hostel. And, you know, it was like 10 bucks a night. He's talking about the American Youth Hostel Ranch on the northwest side of the island that actually does rent out teepees and cabins. And it's on this, you know, huge, like, tw- I think it's 20 acres out there. It's this beautiful hippie commune kind of youth hostel vibe. It just kind of gave it a, a special charge when people are really, you know, getting away. And certainly, you know, you couldn't really talk about Vashon and creativity without just talking about just the nature. And that's just the big thing that we, Elaine and I, just always enjoy. And it's really, 
It feels great to share that with other people. While they've recorded albums for artists across the nation at their home studio on Vashon Island, they've also written and recorded original material that's seen some success. This song was featured in the movie Zombieland. There's a song of ours called Two of the Lucky Ones. It's one that's done pretty well for us. And, and that song, it's literally, it's verbatim taking a walk in the evening. So like we would go up to this spot where we're st- the lyric is standing on a hill, staring at a mountain. Swallows dive and turn, trying to catch what we can't see. I mean, that's it. We're just standing on this hill and we're looking at Mount Rainier and there's swallows diving around. You know, it's like standing on a hill, staring at a mountain. Elaine and I first moved out here, really what we were looking for was a place to get away. So as a touring musician, when we were looking for a place to buy a house, the idea was, well, let's buy a house in the kind of place where you would want to go decompress after a tour. And that's really what we found here. I love coming home to Vashon. The island has attracted other artists in different ways, like Nika Danilova, the woman behind the project Zola Jesus. She was looking for a temporary escape from life in L.A. back around 2012. I wanted to just go somewhere totally different, and so I found a um, kind of like a short-term rental on Vashon Island, which is... It was just so beautiful, and so I, I took the chance and I moved there. It was more of this retreat, this hermetic retreat. Um, I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anybody, and but then and then there were other people that were living on the island around the same time I was, like other musicians. Um, but we never connected while I was while I was there. It was very like isolated, um, consciously isolated. I know a song on your album was definitely inspired by um, by Vashon. Do you want to talk a little bit about that song and maybe any other songs on that album that were specifically inspired by the island or your experience there? Well, Lawless, I wrote on Vashon. And the chorus is, in these lawless times, I've got nothing left to hide. Give it up for good. You either run or you take it. And um, I something be strong enough. I don't, I don't remember the lyrics anymore. But, you know, it, it's really about just overpopulation. And it's about living in areas that are uh, densely colonized. And, um, and just wanting to break free from that and to live somewhere where there's space. And there's space for... There's space, not only physical space, but there's this emotional and psychological and spiritual space within a natural world or natural space. And I felt that as I was on Vashon Island writing it, looking out at the sound and not seeing a house in sight and feeling just like, um, feeling like humans just don't, aren't able to experience that enough these days.
She says even though Vashon is right next to Seattle, it seems a world away. There's no bridge. There's You have to take a ferry in West Seattle at Fauntleroy. And um, that seems kind of like, uh, it, it makes it seem further away than it really is from the city. So there is just this feeling that when you're there, you're kind of like disconnected from, from a metropolis, even though you're basically right next to it. It was just, it's a really special place. Like I, I've tried to find other places like that, especially when I was looking to buy a house in the Seattle area. Um, but Vashon is just this enclave of a bunch of weirdos <laughs> and interesting people. And um, it's really beautiful. Though conscious isolation on Vashon Island helped fuel Zola Jesus as an artist, the difficult logistics of a ferry schedule and the end of her short-term lease ultimately caused her to leave the island. The ferry doesn't run 24 hours a day, so it's really impossible to live there if you, like, for me, I have to get on early flights in the morning, you know, or I have to, you know, there are times when I wanted to go to Seattle for a show, and then, but the the ferry would stop running, like, at 3 a.m. or something like that. Nika has since moved to another place where she finds calm isolation, a farm in her home state of Wisconsin. Chris Ballou is the former lead singer of the popular 90s band The Presidents of the United States of America. He and his wife, artist Kate Endel, are about to move from West Seattle to live on Vashon Island full-time. I discovered Vashon way back in high school. The guitar player for the Presidents, Dave Dieterer, uh, his his family had a little shack out there. And so we used to go out every weekend for a, quite a stretch and just kind of walk on the beach and hang out. And that's when my eyes were first opened to, whoa, this is like close to the city and feels like I'm a million miles away. This is cool. It struck a chord with me, although, you know, I was a teenager, so I didn't really know what having a chord struck felt like uh, or meant, actually. She's not, she might be dead. The impulse to move over there was a long, simmering one. Lots of uh, little hints that it was the right thing to do. My wife, Kate, and I spent our honeymoon there. We honeymooned on Vashon before we lived there. And uh, then we bought a little cabin, um, but we decided then we wanted to really lay down roots on Vashon, so the cabin was too small and it was on a hillside and we couldn't build our studios. Chris and Kate are currently working on renovating their dream home in Paradise Cove an idyllic, quiet, private beachfront neighborhood on the southwestern side of the island. The perfect spot to watch the sun set behind the Olympic Mountains. It is, yeah. It's magical. Have you used Vashon sort of more as a as a retreat and secluded yourself, or have you entered into the artistic community that's thriving over there and... I use Vashon more as a place to turn myself on. Like, I feel completely, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, switched on when I'm there. My, my sensory feelers are hypersensitive out there to creative ideas. Because I don't have all the noise and literal noise and visual noise of living in the city. I feel like I'm switched on creatively out there. And again, our spot on Paradise Cove is just so idyllic. I mean, it's it, our jaws are on the ground all day long, just looking at the clouds and the sun and the water and the 
earth and trees and we have our own little tiny redwood forest there so it's really um it's really where we feel like ourselves you leonard skinnerd hat and me little kitty sat across with a velvet jacket wild orange hair and dark dark eyes there is a large and thriving artistic community of of all disciplines out on Vashon what do you think it is about the the that island specifically that attracts that type of person well, we like to call Bainbridge the professional island, and Vashon is the amateur island. You know, we we don't really have our act together. There's a lot of amateurness, amateurness about the island, and I think that's kind of relaxing for creative people. A rural community within reach of the big city that lives solely at the mercy of the ferry system. It's not for the faint of heart, but for creatives who feel the urge to distance themselves from the noise and commotion of the city, Vashon Island has proven to be a haven, an inspiration, and it's home to an incredibly unique community of exceptional artists. For KEXP's Sound and Vision, I'm Drew Pine. This is Sound and Vision. Well, Christmas season is officially in full swing, which means you probably have heard at least one Christmas song already. KEXP DJ Morgan was wondering, for those of you who work in retail, if listening to the same Christmas song over and over and over and over again impacts your mental health. The subject we'll actually explore in depth later this month. Meanwhile, we gave a shout out to listeners who've worked in retail to see if there was a Christmas song that drove them absolutely crazy. And here's what they had to say. This is Brad Baker. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for 20 years uh, earlier in my life. And during the late 90s, I worked at a large retail department store in the small electronics and luggage department. And during the Christmas season, which was irritating to begin with, we had music playing that was really a playlist that was only long enough to be heard by our customers based on the average amount of time they spent in the store, which was less than an hour. So it would basically be the same 10 to 12 songs. And while they all, I found them irritating, there was one in particular Feliz Navidad, that was just the worst, just that nasally Feliz Navidad over and over again. Such a happy song, and it just made me miserable, and I really just wanted to uh, jump out a window, but unfortunately, there were no windows in my department, so to this day, that song still gets to me. Feliz Navidad. My name is Pippin Shubak. I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The holiday song that I hate is I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by John Mellencamp. When I was 18, I worked at The Gap one holiday season. And for about six weeks, we had to play the same tape over and over. It's store policy. So every every store nationwide had to play the same set of songs and so the christmas music started before thanksgiving and we had to listen to it till new year's day <clears throat> that's a long time and so every time i saw mommy kissing santa claus came on it 
was like nails on a chalkboard. I just hated that song. And there were some other songs that I didn't like as well, which I still don't like. And to this day, I cannot listen to most holiday music because of those six weeks listening for about eight hours of holiday music. I, I can't stand it. I can't go to malls. I can't listen to like Bean Crosby anymore, holiday soundtrack. I can't do it. I'm Paul Moyano. I live in Deerfield, Illinois. The song that drives me crazy is the Chipmunks' Christmas Time is Here. When I worked at a bar in college, uh, people drinking at the bar would put that on the jukebox uh, regularly, um, and it would drive everybody behind the bar crazy. So we would run over and try to bounce that song as quickly as we could, uh, but it would inevitably come up again uh, throughout the night. My name is Heather and I live in Ballard and I hate the Christmas song. These are a few of my favorite things from The Sound of Music. Whose idea was it to turn the song into a Christmas song? I worked in retail for years and this song always makes me cringe. Like, how does it relate to Christmas? What am I supposed to do? Ask Santa for a bright copper kettle and warm woolen mittens? And then it has the chorus about when the dog bites and the bee stings, which are not fun and jolly at all related to any holiday. So I just don't understand why it's a part of everyone's Christmas catalog. I mean, and it's so catchy. It just uh, it always stays in my head. No, thank you. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so Thanks to everyone for responding to this week's listener question, and thanks to you for listening. If you are feeling extra generous this season, KEXP would love to see a one-time $20 donation from you to help support this podcast. You can do that at kexp.org sound. If that seems like a big commitment, you can just take one to two minutes of your time and subscribe, rate, or review this podcast Subscriptions, ratings, and reviews actually make a huge difference. It allows other people to find out about this podcast. It makes people know if this podcast is worthy. So it makes a huge difference. So take one or two minutes of your time right now. It would make a huge impact, and I would very much appreciate it. All right, let's wrap up the show today with our final question. Why does music matter? Here's Chris Ballou, frontman of the Presence of the United States of America, who lives on Vashon Island. He's also up for a Grammy nomination for Best Children's Album under the name Casper Baby Pants. Here was his answer to why does music matter? Because it unites people. It brings people together around a shared common experience. You can go to a show of a band you love and you can go into that crowd and you can stand among strangers and understand something about everyone in the room without speaking. It's like an unspoken uh, line of energy that 
that expands out and touches people you don't even know and unites you and those people together. I think it's a beautiful thing. Early in humanity's uh, existence, abstraction allowed groups of a hundred to become society because in a small group of a hundred, you had to know everybody's face, you had to know everybody's name or who they were. If you wore an amulet or you had a certain kind of war paint on or something, you would, uh, and it was the same as what you wore, you'd know this person without speaking. And music still does that. It still helps expand our circles and bring us together at the same time. That was Sound and Vision. Let's chat more next week.